Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter will be in chapter 3 this morning, verses 1 through 6. If you need a Bible, there's one provided for you, and it will be page 1015 in that copy of the Word. We have heard so far in Peter's letter concerning our, our living hope in Christ. It's imperishable. It's unfading. It's undefiled. It's perfect. It's perfectly guarded for us. It changes everything. We've heard about our holy calling, a calling to a transformed life, to holy conduct, because God is holy. And that's possible for us to fulfill Because he's empowered it. He's made us new. We've been born again to that living hope. Just as Jesus is raised from the dead, so we are powerfully changed. Well, this living hope and this holy calling transforms every department of our lives and every role that we fulfill in life, including the roles of wives and husbands, to which we turn this week and next. So first up is the wives. How does this living hope And this call, holy calling, transform your role in your relationship with your husband. Let's read together. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Well, this is God's word for us today. Uh, It's occurring to me that it's getting chilly out. It's getting colder out in Greenville. And I'm just glad it won't get too much colder. I spent a number of years in a part of the country and with my car outside, where in the mornings you had to decide whether you would chip all that ice off the windshield or whether you would get in the car and wait for the car to heat up so that it might melt off, or you might just wipe it off if you waited long enough. Now, that was always a decision to make. Well, this morning, I suppose we could come at this text with a number of clarifications. I could come at this text with the chisel, if you will, and, and carve out a really clear picture of what Peter does and doesn't mean against the backdrop of the weather that we're in as Christians in our exiled age. But my preference this morning, and that would not be illegitimate, my preference this morning is to let the light of the Word of God warm us and heat us so that at the end I might offer some clarifications and they might just come. It might take the, the little, you don't even have to use, you don't even have to use the, uh, the, the chipper side of the, of the car thing when, you're, when your windshield is warm enough, you can just wipe it away with the brush side. So that's my vision today. We get to the end of the sermon and I can say a few things by way of clarification 
Our hearts are there. God has brought us there. And with the light of his own word, he's made us hungry for this, even to obey it and to see it as beautiful. I'm not going to tell you how this works itself out and, you know, how you manage your finances at home or how you end up deciding where you'll go on vacation or which way the toilet paper roll goes. Those are all very important. And I'll let you work all that out yourself, as Peter has allowed marriages to work these things out for themselves. But I will tell you what I'm praying for. I'm praying that some among us would know what to look for in a husband because, women, you ought to desire to marry a man who would desire this in his wife and even cultivate and nurture this in his wife. And that you'll know what to cultivate in your own heart as you look forward to marriage. For others who are married, my prayer would be that you would know how properly to relate with your husband if you're a wife. And and a husband then with your wife, because this is instructive for you as well. And for all of us, whatever your station, whether you're married or not, have been married, will be married, won't be married. We all have different stations. We're all members in a church with married couples. And a passage like this, even as we're listening in on words to wives, and I'm not a wife, help us to know how to pray for each other and speak to each other the word of God. So I've got three words for the wives this morning. First, wives, you have a spectacular role. Wives, your appearance is everything. And wives, compare yourselves to other women. Sometimes an outline gives everything away, and sometimes it just holds your attention. In this case, it should hold your attention just fine. So I thought I would give it away. Well, first, wives, sisters, you have a spectacular role to play. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and your pure conduct. We have here a little more specificity as to what this holy calling, which is a great privilege, means means for you. Now, I wondered as I read this and felt a little bad that there were so many words to the ladies and so few words to the husbands. If you'll take a look down here in verse 7, we have some words to the husbands. And uh, Peter gets it done with in a single sentence in our English verses. And I thought, now, why would that be? Now, it could be that there were an abundance of women getting converted in these churches in Asia Minor and not so many husbands. We might assume that was actually the case when it came to slaves and masters in last week's passage. My guess in this case is that that's not the situation. Rather, Peter's pattern so far is to put his point of focus on those who are experiencing hardship or the most hardship, on the roles that have to give deference and submission up in a structure. So whether that be government and citizens or slaves and masters, or in this case, wives and husbands, wives find themselves in a, in a marital structure according to God's design where they are giving submission and deference to, to leadership. And so he puts his attention there. They're also the ones vulnerable to having the hardest time because of their place in this order. I suppose it could also be uh, an attention span thing. Women are better listeners, and so he takes his time, and he offers an illustration and a little bit of motivation and a comparison. 
And men, well, they just need it right now and they need it simple and okay, that's enough. (laughs) Maybe that's part of what's going on. He reaches the end of his sentence and figures that should do it for the men. So you don't need to read, overread into the length of the passage here. But I do just want to highlight that the framing is not that of hardship, although he's speaking to those who may well be in hardship. This framing is hopeful and encouraging as to what God would do with your submission. You have a spectacular role to play in the first place in the plan of God. So let's zoom way out. This last week, uh, the kids and I opened one of the days with Psalm 104, which is a beaming, vivid, energetic description of all that God has made. His world teeming with creatures of every kind. He put the birds in the sky and the fish in the water and he created every animal to move just as it does on the earth to eat what it does, to live as it does, birds to nest, all of that. And he's to be praised for all of it. And he has also made humans in a particular way and he's to be praised for that. If he's to be praised for the birds and for the fish and for the creatures on the earth and for the stars, those are beautiful. Those are incredible. How much more should he be praised for the creation of humankind In particular, the difference between men and women and their complementarity and especially to be praised in the gift of marriage, which is his thoughtful project and gift to us. And I compare us to the stars in not a silly way, like, oh, the stars are wonderful and incredible and imagine galaxies. Oh, little us. No, 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 no. The whole whole universe, the whole cosmos, the earth itself is is a nest, if you will, that God has made. It's a habitat for humanity, the true habitat for humanity. God has made the world and the universe for us. It speaks to us about him, but also in its beauty and its expansiveness, it speaks to us about us, how much God cares for us and how special we are in his mind and in his creation and how much care he has put into us. There's important distinctions to be minded in Genesis 1 and 2 where the Bible begins. A distinction between the creator and the creature. And we give praise to God that he is God and we are not. And we give praise to God for the difference between men and women. That he didn't make us all copies to reproduce by laying eggs or something like that. No, he has made us male and female. He has made us different. And he's made for marriage, husband and wife. And the differences between a husband and wife are profound. And they're all of his design. I mean, just think about the, careful about this, but think about the difference between our bodies. Well, there are simple and obvious differences that belong in textbooks and not maybe in the pulpit. But there are also obvious differences that kids can pick up. The male body is like a tool, It is a weapon, typically in the normal course of things, stronger, able to dig, able to break, able to drag, able to provide. The female body is different. It's softer. It's gentler. It is built for nurturing. It's a creator of life. It's an incubator. 
And from conception all the way to birth, even into the early years of a child's life, the woman's body can feed a baby. It's absolutely amazing. Propping ourselves up with so much technology, it could be easy to forget God's beautiful provision in the distinctiveness of husband and wife. There weren't bottles to feed a baby in a different way apart from a woman's body years and years back. No, no, no. God has made things simple and he's made humans beautiful and he's made men and women different and husband and wives different in ways that are apparent to the youngest child, even in the ways I've described. But that extends all the way down to just about everything about us. We are so much the same as human beings and yet we are so different. And that's something for which we can give praise to God. Now, when we looked at human government a few weeks ago, there's some flexibility there. We don't have an emperor and governing authorities that are sent by an emperor, and we know how to apply it in that case. The Bible is not prescribing an emperor for human government. In the case last week of slaves and masters, the Bible was also not prescribing slave-master relationships, even if it's modified from what we would have had in America many years ago. But there are hierarchical authority relationships in the context of our economic relations and work, and we know how to apply that passage in our day. Now, some want to take this pattern of application and come to this and say that men and women actually don't have distinctive roles wherein there is a difference of leadership and followership in the home. And so we just merely apply this within the cultural milieu of the day and the way that husband and wife relationships are understood. But that is not the case. This particular relationship is different than the others and that it is down to husband and wife is rooted in creation itself. And even this leadership, loving servant leadership and followership deferential, loving respect. These differences are rooted even in eternity. As between God the Father and the Son and the Spirit, there is an ordering of relationships and yet a perfect equality as God. And we saw Jesus submit to the will of his Father in his earthly life, and that itself is a pattern for us in marriage. And all of this is, all of this is beautiful We think about how there is design everywhere we look. If you've got a pile of car parts, you'll know that those aren't very good for much. But if you can assemble them in a particular way, why, you can travel across the country. My son is learning to play the guitar, so we've got those around. And when the strings break, well, a string doesn't work unless it's attached to the guitar. You can have a fretboard, and that's good as a piece of wood, but it's not good as a guitar until you attach to it the strings. But how different are the strings from the fretboard? One is flexible and the other one is firm. They're very different, but together they make a musical instrument. Now you can follow that matter of design and complementarity as far as you like, but everywhere we look, we see design and structure and complementarity and the fittedness of things. And that extends even in God's beautiful design down to the relationship of a husband and wife, not only physically, but in the way that they relate together as a married couple. So wives, you have a spectacular role to play in the plan of God. 
If God has given you the blessing of being a wife, then this is part of your wonderful part in his plan. But you also have a spectacular role to play in the life of your husband, your companion, the one to whom the one God has given to you. You're at its best, your best friend, and you're there to bless him as he is there to bless you in ways that make sense given your role. You have a spectacular role to play in your husband's life. And let me just say, not in every man's life. He says, be subject to your own husbands. To your own husbands. And, and actually, there's more here than you would think. In a world that would reject the deferential, loving followership and support and submission of wives to their husbands, wives end up in subjection to all men. In our own day, is as bad as it's ever been on this point. One of the things that is missing in our own generation's love for and care for our daughters and for women is a proper understanding of the responsibility of a husband for a wife. And you're to be subject, submissive to your own husband and to no one else's husband and not to all men in general. This is a basic principle of human relations and human society that when it's gotten right, a woman is paired with a man and not everyone is allowed to feast on every woman. And you have a blessed place to play in your husband's life. Not all husbands and not all men, but, but yours. Did you know that in the beginning of the Bible, God made Everything good except when you weren't there, it actually wasn't good. (laughs) God can do no wrong. He makes the world, but he specifically slows down the, the picture so that we can see how important you are to it. So that when he makes the man, it's not good that man is alone. And the answer for that bad situation is you. You complete the picture. So that the world is perfect once there's a woman. And it is not until you're there. And this highlights the man's inadequacy. That should humble us men. This highlights your sufficiency to complete a man. And it highlights the nature of man and wife in marriage as complementary. Now, an obvious caveat needs to be offered. That in this age, in this world, uh, marriage is not ultimate. Um, the Lord is the husband of his wife, the bride, the church. And if you're a part of this family, then you've got all you need. And God may not provide a spouse for each of us. And as it is in the new creation, there won't be any giving or having, receiving in marriage. And the Bible has other passages that speak to singleness and these kinds of things. But there is a normal way that he set things up to be and we feel it and observe it and it is the general pattern of things. And God has a spectacular role for you to play wife in his plan and a spectacular role for you to play in the life of your companion in life, your husband, as a helpmate, a compliment to him. And we should say, He has a spectacular role for you to play in the life of your unbelieving husband if he's given you an unbelieving husband. And maybe this is a question that's been on your mind, but I'm not married to a believing man. He's my companion, 
but I know the Lord now and he doesn't. And that presents you with difficulties of various kinds and you know what those are and I don't. Although we care for and shepherd ladies in all kinds of situations, you only know the trials that you have and to what extent this is a trial. When he says here in verse one, be subject to your own husband's Should that apply if he's not a believer? So that even if some do not obey the word, Peter says. So he's on it. He's on it. He's got you in mind. In fact, this is the very situation that probably gave rise to this passage pastorally. He has you on his mind as he puts his pen to paper. The spirit cares about your situation. Now, what is he talking about when he says if some do not obey the word? Is this applying to worst case scenarios? For example, profound physical abuse, verbal berating, and just absolute cruelty. And there is that of all kinds. And some of you are aware of it firsthand. Some of you are aware of it in your family. And no, he's not speaking about that here. This is not a manual for every situation that a a wife may find herself in. It's a situation for the normal kind of hardship that he's addressing. And I want to convince you for a moment that this doesn't cover all kinds of disobedience that a husband may give himself to. But, but he's speaking about women married to unbelieving, unbelieving men. Let's listen to the collection of verses here as we go. In verses one through, chapter 1, verse 2, he's in the course of his greeting. He speaks, about, uh, he speaks to them as elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. And as we'll see, that language of obedience is shorthand. It's another way of expressing an obedience to the gospel itself. We'll keep working here. Chapter 3, verse 20. Verse 18, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And their great sin was that of unbelief. Look at 4 verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God, obey the good news of God? Now back to 1 chapter 22, excuse me, chapter 1 verse 22. Having purified your souls, how did that happen? By your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love. You see this obedience to the truth Obedience to the gospel, obedience to Jesus Christ. This is a way that Peter, somewhat uniquely, not exactly, uh, speaks about conversion. In the verse 23 now, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So we're born again by the word of God as we obey the gospel of God, which is the word of God. And now in chapter 2, verse 8, he speaks of those who disobey the word and who were destined to. He's speaking here about conversion. So you'll see 
that when we come to our passage and he says, likewise, uh, wives, likewise, wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, do you see, do you hear that now? So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one. Well, he's not talking about winning them to more faithfulness to Jesus. He's talking about winning them to Christ. And so here's the profound truth. Now that we've clarified, let's inspire you as Peter does, that your unbelieving husband may be won without a word by your conduct when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, this doesn't mean that you're never to speak a word of the gospel or a word about sin. That's not what that means. For there's no coming to Christ apart from the word, the imperishable word. One needs to hear the good news. Your respectful behavior won't communicate the the gospel content that is necessary for salvation. No, that's assumed. What he's saying by way of emphasis is that you should not underestimate the persuasive power of rightly ordered relationships in marriage and your part in it. As I'm defining it, loving deference to your husband's leadership. And sometimes a husband is a better leader and sometimes he's a worse leader. But he says even to those who don't obey the word here, and if they're not converted... We can only imagine that that must mean that they could be disagreeable and trouble and angry sometimes and difficult. Now, this is written to Christian women in the normal situation of marriage, which is often difficult. In this case, to a difficult man, one who doesn't obey the word. And it could be tempting for this man. One of his sins may be to be harsh with his wife because she's become converted When you have women coming to Christ in the ancient world, married to husbands who do not believe or obey the word, and their public reputation is online here because typically the wife in the ancient world would worship the God that the husband worships, and his reputation in the community would be tied to the God that his family worships, and here his wife is taking exception. (laughs) And so though you can't worship his God, be a great wife. Be supportive, be cheerful, be deferential, be respectful, even be subject to your own husbands, he says. So don't blow up the marriage because you became a Christian, in other words. Just because you're a Christian and now you have the word of God and you know the Lord of history and the Lord of heaven and you know that you're a child of God doesn't mean that you can put your nose up. And tell him off because he doesn't know which way is up and become trouble. So that now this man's wife has become a Christian and she has become difficult and she's proud. This would be a legitimate temptation. No, assume a humble posture with the possibility of this spectacular prospect that God will save your husband because of your respectful and pure conduct, respectful conduct that isn't condescending or biting the lip, or bitter, and pure conduct from a genuine and sincere heart. And if anyone knows, isn't it our spouse that knows? You can feel it in the room. You can feel it in the bed. You can feel it in the conversation. 
whether the motives are poisoned and the intention is that of manipulation or if the submission and the deference is begrudging. Respectful and pure conduct through which God works profound miracles to save difficult, unbelieving men. So friends, we should pray for the ladies in our church who are married to men who don't obey the gospel, not only for their husbands who might believe, but for them in the course of this trial, that they would be godly and happy and God-fearing and God-pleasing wives to their husbands. Well, there's some hints at some limitations here we should mention as we go. If this matter of respectful and pure conduct and subjection to an unbelieving husband is a way in which God brings about their own salvation, then implicit within this would mean that if he tells you to renounce your faith, do not submit. If he sin against your Lord, do not submit. If he forbids you to obey your Lord fully, do not submit. There's more that could be said. If he tells you not to gather with the church, don't submit. You need to gather with the church. There are all kinds of other little qualifications that could be added. But this is within the context of your subjection first to Christ and to God. You're being subject to every human institution, remember earlier in two sermons ago, in the Lord. So this is within the context of your first allegiance, which is to Jesus. And it can be said that if a man doesn't only not obey the word, but he is physically dangerous towards you, that is not what Peter addresses here specifically. But I would just invite you, even exhort you to seek a father, a father-in-law, a brother, an elder, a Christian brother within the church, and to seek help. That is perfectly welcome, perfectly appropriate, and not in contradiction with this passage. It is a different situation, and you will not look, be looked down on for it. So wives, you have a spectacular role to play in God's plan in the life of your husband. And if God chooses to save your husband in the life of your unbelieving husband. And let me just read this word from Augustine. I think he wrote it in 379, if I'm not mistaken. So this is old. 397 AD in his autobiography, The Confessions of St. Augustine. I haven't worked all the way through it. Need to parts of it. The Confessions of St. Augustine, a Christian man from that fourth century, writes a tribute to his mother that is a moving tribute to his mother who believed faithfully and tried to live out this biblical role in her marriage and God did bless it, which is not his promise, but which is a certain hope that we can hold on to. He wrote this, my mother, she served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. And finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. Wives, you'd have no idea what God may do, but consider that there is eternal value 
in the difficult labor of loving deference to your husband, especially if he doesn't know the Lord. And we recognize that, and Peter recognizes that. And maybe that's why he gave you more text, because of your difficult situation. So let's keep working through the things that Peter has said to us and to you. So first, you have a spectacular role to play. And now, remember that your appearance is everything. Your appearance is everything. Of course, it matters who we're appearing to and whose eye we're trying to catch. Let's read verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Well, what we have here is a simple contrast between that which is external and that which is internal. That which is seen by all And that which is only, in the deepest and purest sense, seen by God. And he is addressing here a common temptation that all women, all humans have, but women have in a particular way because God has made them beautiful and he has not made men beautiful. A particular preoccupation women will have with their outward appearance, with that which is ultimately superficial, And he is putting their attention on, seeking to convert your attention, to divert and to attach your attention to that which is productive and that which is spiritual, from that which is external to that which is internal. Now, it's fine to appreciate and to invest in one's outward appearance. Putting the whole Bible together, we recognize that God did not accidentally make women beautiful and think, Oh, I have made it hard for the guys. Uh, I should not have done that. This was a terrible mistake. I should have made them grotesque. No, that's not the case. Beauty, even in our complementary ways, are God's idea and his design. We can give him praise for it. Rachel was beautiful in the Old Testament. Song of Solomon will paint vivid, uh, appropriate, Slightly inappropriate pictures of women through that book of the Bible to be read only after young men are 13 or of marriageable age. This is a matter of emphasis, though. And the inward is so much more important that he offers a simple emphatic command. Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. You can wear clothing. You can wear jewelry. You can braid your hair. This is by way of emphasis. Our vulnerability in a post-fall world in which we have sin and you have sin, ladies, is for guys to obsess about the external and then you for to obsess about the external. And to use your external appearance either to attract the attention of men, which you would make a god, or to manipulate men if you make power over them a god. The problem is great enough. We all understand it on both sides of things that he says, don't let your adorning be external, but where ought you to put your attention to the hidden person, he says, of the heart. There is a hidden person which God can see 
which if invested in is imperishable in its beauty. Oh, that favorite word of Peter, the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Oh, the Lord is good. And this is a good command. Women are occupied with beauty and men are occupied with the beauty of women. And three times in this passage, we have the language of adornment, external adornment in contrast to internal adornment. In a moment, we'll get to Sarah, who was beautiful in the way God speaks about. And the heart of all this is that God often sees fit to use the godliness of God-fearing women to bring to conversion godless men so that they may know him and fear him. And in all of this, is it not curious, if not ironic, that Peter, of all people, who writes this, who would get the condescension of many in our community whom we love, but Peter has a higher view of women than any of us certainly of the spirit of our own age, where he looks to the internal, not the external. And for all of the ways in which our own culture and age has sought to respect women that are good, I don't think we could say that women are generally, generally on the whole respected by men, not as they ought to be, not for their inner person, You'd only have to follow the, daughter, the, the dollars or the clicks or the most popular websites. There are things that are talked about and virtue signaled about, but then there are the things that actually happen. And what Peter is promoting here is a beautiful, lofty, godly affection for women on account of their hidden person, men. But then for you women to give your attention to and your focus to the hidden person of your heart. So you could take a little inventory of the things that you're doing in a day or a week or a year to take care of your outer person. And maybe some of those things could change. Or maybe you leave them there. But what is the inventory for your care for your hidden person? The time that you're investing in that. You know, you keep track of what shape you're in over here and and that's good, and diet is good, and all this. Uh, but what about what shape you're at in your hidden person? Out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. So you could listen to yourself talk to your husband. You could, you could listen to your heart talk about him. And let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And sisters, those of you who are wives... Give yourself not so much to what is on you, but what is in you. Not so much to what is on the surface, but what is under the surface. Not to your makeup fundamentally, but to your maker. Because look at this here. Verse 4. Let the adorning be internal, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. And this is key. Which in God's sight is very precious. Because your husband may look on you and not give credit to your inner beauty. Or it may take many years until his heart is one if God is to convert him. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, sometimes they won't be respectful and appreciative and 
They won't be turned and they won't be wooed and they won't be won. But here in verse 4, we find out who is also watching you. God is watching you. And that is not offered by Peter as something to scare you. That is offered by Peter as something to endear you, to soften you, to encourage you in hardship. Your gentle and quiet spirit, an imperishable beauty, which in God's sight is very precious. So pursue it. And we can conclude from this little reflection here that the first order of business in your relationship with your husband, wives, is your relationship with God. Where will you get the strength, spiritually speaking, to keep these commands that he's giving you concerning respectfulness and purity and subjection to your husband, whom you know full well doesn't deserve this? This is not a matter of his characters winning it. It's a matter of his role in the marriage as your husband. So where will you get the spiritual strength on the harder days to respect him? You will get it from your relationship with God as you pursue his sight of your precious, imperishable internal beauty, as you cultivate beauty in the hidden person of your own heart. And this is a daily thing. This is a weekly thing. And so give yourselves to it. Well, we have one more division here in our morning. Wives, you have a spectacular role to play. We've received a calling, a command. It's all about your appearance. Remember that. Your appearance is everything. We've received a contrast between where you typically will be tempted to put your attention on the external with what God sees and uses the internal And now, wives, be sure to compare yourself with other women. And of course, it all depends on who you're comparing yourself with. You'll be tempted to compare yourself with other women and other wives and other marriages. Apostle Peter points you to the Old Testament. He points you to Sarah, married to Abraham. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Lord, master, leader, number one, you know, the guy out front, the leader of our home, she deferred to him in that way. The Lord came to Abraham. He didn't come to Sarah, but he was to take Sarah and together they went. So who is he talking about comparing yourself to? Not any women, but to holy women who hoped in God. Isn't that a beautiful way to describe Sarah? A holy woman who hoped in God. And where could you see her hope in God most vividly? Well, perhaps in the relationship that provided her the most trouble and trial and difficulty, her marriage, her marriage to Abraham. And it's helpful to get this little note about Sarah. And I would just send you home to do your own homework. This isn't a blessing of all that Sarah ever said and did, but Sarah wasn't, Sarah wasn't a pushover. Sarah wasn't invisible on the page. She was smart. She was strong. 
She confronted Abraham several times when she should have. And she probably should have addressed him and gotten in his face a few more times if she was always in her own right mind. In some ways, this little note about Sarah is a subtle way, perhaps, of filling out the whole picture of what it means to have a gentle and quiet spirit. And to rule out such things as never talking or merely sitting there or get my chips now. That is not what the scriptures have in mind. But I love nachos. And sometimes I am comfortable on the couch. Though I don't think I've ever asked for chips. So why? Why? We've got the who to compare yourself to. Look to these examples of women in the Holy Scriptures. You can look to the wives of your elders in this church. Plenty of wives in our own church. But, but the wives of our elders and of our deacons are, are godly women. That godly marriage is a part of qualifying a, a man for, for the role of pastor or role of deacon. So that's even maybe a little local and more concrete example. But why should a woman submit? We get, we get a bit of an insight into that here at the end. Not from fear. Let us say that much. You are her children. What an honor to be one of Sarah's children. If you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. And so we can say, husbands, it would be sinful for you to hold this over your wife in a way that frightens her. If she's supposed to obey her Lord and her relationship from her inner person from faith, who are you to hold this over as a kind of threat? (laughs) I'm not aware of any of this going on right now, but there's always a little bit of this that happens. Men are sinful and can sinfully in their flesh misuse and twist the scriptures, and we can be forgiven for that, and we can grow out of that. Praise the Lord. He's growing all of us men. But if you find yourself saying something like ridiculous, like God told you to submit to me (laughs) and you want to throw your finger like that or whatever gesture it would take in your own marriage, maybe slow down, maybe walk out of the room, maybe start praying to God for your wife. This matter of her submission is, is one of the most intimate matters of obedience in her relationship with God in a matter of obedience that is to come from faith. And that's something supernatural that you should pray for. And even as she's seeking to win her unbelieving husband to the Lord, if you're a believing husband, this goes in the other direction as well, even though it wasn't totally the occasion of his writing. Yes, you can win your unbelieving wife without a word by your loving leadership. We'll talk a little bit about that next week. But this obedience is to not be from a place of fear, of threat, but from living hope and your holy calling. For the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves in this way. So look to them. So now having warmed ourselves in the car, probably not a great illustration for a morning in which we're addressing the women. Automotive illustrations. But they're what comes to me. You know, I was thinking yesterday about the, the chilly weather. Well, now the windshield is warmed and we're starting to see the ice melt. And we're about to wash it away. And this shouldn't take too much work. It shouldn't be too hard to go down. Because you've heard about how much God loves you. And how he cares for you. And how he sees you. And we've looked to the example of Sarah. Friends, this submission in the New Testament is perfectly scriptural. 
It is plain in the Bible, although you won't hear it outside these walls. It is a good word to you to discern what it means. It is from God. It is not sinister. It is scriptural. This matter of submission is natural. It's natural to how he made men and women when they are joined together in marriage. It's not a matter of sociology or group patterns, but it was true even before the fall into sin. This matter of submission is limited. It's limited in its scope. It is not to every man. It is to your husband and your husband alone, which is to say you should not obey other husbands. It is limited in its extent. It's not absolute. It is in the Lord. And you can be faithful and pursue help outside of your marriage if things become profoundly difficult and dangerous for you, as I've encouraged you to do. And it's limited in its meaning. It is not derogatory. It does not remove your, your, your equality with man as an image bearer. You occupy different roles. You may not always agree. You are both made in God's image with a mind and a heart and a life and a relationship with him. Even though you may defer. It's scriptural, natural, limited. It's difficult because of your sins, wives. As in the fall, you now have a desire for your husband, which Genesis 3 says, which doesn't mean you, you love him. It means you compete with him. You want his spot. It's difficult because of his sin, men at their worst, abdicating their responsibilities or abusing their authority. And it's difficult because of everyone else's sins. The spirit of the age. We have our former ignorance that we were saved out of, and we're surrounded by people writing articles and publishing ads and writing Netflix documentaries and shows who are working out of a framework that is exactly like our own former ignorance. That don't recognize the beauty of the complementarity between men and women and the appropriateness of submission and respect and loving leadership in a marriage. And just go figure, ever since the beginning, Satan has been energetically attacking the most basic and beautiful and blessed things. He goes right to marriage. God gives a word to Adam. Satan comes to Eve and undermines the order and the relationship and the word of God. It's scriptural, natural, limited, difficult, beneficial for you. This is a liberating command. Like a bird is liberated by its, the constraint of its wings. This is what you were made for. It's empowering. Just consider the power of God using your respectful and pure conduct to convert a man. And it's a blessing when you obey God from it. And it's beneficial to other people to your husband and to your family and to your community. It's also beautiful, isn't it? The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit and the beauty of the way that a husband and a wife live and work and talk and lead together their home. This is going to look different in each of your homes, but it should look like what we see on the page. I'll often tell in premarital counseling with a young couple You know, it's really hard to tell where my leadership begins and our partnership begins. Or Christy making a decision and me being responsible for it as the head of our home. It's very hard to tell. I know what she's thinking. I can trust her. She knows what I'm thinking. She can trust me. We know when to bring things up, what to talk about. 
When we were first married, I remember being out and I thought, I need some socks. I should call Christy. And we made sure we were on the same page with the purchase. Now, frankly, we probably needed to be on the same page with the purchase of socks back then. It was like buying a car. Um, but I still remember that and kind of chuckle. Uh, point is, is you, you end up figuring each other out. I, I had spent a lot of money without consulting her in my life, but now I'm married and it just seems like we should be on the same page before I send money out the door for socks. Well, you probably don't need to do that. Maybe not even early in your marriage. But there will be an intuitive way in which this stuff works its way out. And sometimes the intuitive way these things work themselves out aren't healthy. And you should be ready, wives, to repent. And you should be ready, husbands, to repent, to bring things more in align with this passage. Can you look at the passage and say, follow me to a younger Christian couple? It's beautiful and it's supernatural. Friends, it takes the word of God. It takes, it takes hope, a living hope. It takes, it takes the new birth and the spirit's work. It takes a living hope, which comes from a living Lord, which is yielded by a living word, which creates a living people, the church, in which this kind of thing can be seen and encouraged, even as it is today. You know, that matter of Sarah calling her husband Lord is in the context of Genesis chapter 18 when Sarah was overhearing God promise to Abraham that they would have a child and she laughs. (laughs) Well, God give me pleasure. She refers to Abraham as her Lord in that paragraph where she speaks. There's a kind of a nervous hesitation about what God has promised. Well, maybe there's a nervous hesitation about the thought that God would bless you in reordering your life a bit to be more in line with this passage. And let me just encourage you that God sees your hidden person. He sees your hidden, invisible obedience to him. He sees it when it's hard. He loves to bless it. And even if your life won't be marked by what visibly looks like blessing, he is writing to people in trials. Oh, he can bless you with the knowledge of himself and his approval and his care. Just as we ended last week's sermon, he is a good shepherd and the overseer of our souls. So likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this good day and this good word from the scriptures. We know that for each of us, this is going to mean something different. Certainly for husbands, something different than wives. And we pray for help as we talk amongst one another and as we encourage each other with the word as brothers and sisters in this church family to apply these things in meaningful and concrete ways that make a lot of sense in our marriages and that display the beauty of the gospel to our community even display the beauty of the gospel in our own homes. And we pray, Father, that you would even this year, before it's out, save a man or a woman married to a Christian member of this church and use their loving obedience to you in their marriage in relationship to their spouse to bring that about. We know that you can do that. We know that you often are pleased to do that. We know and submit to you as you take your time to do that. And when you do it, Father, we'll give you all the praise in Christ's name. Amen.